You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange, everybody. Here's what's ahead. Rising cases, rising jobless claims, and rising doubts about more COVID relief all have the markets on shaky ground. We'll have the latest and see if earnings can help this market. Plus, out of fashion, one analyst says a number of retailers could be negatively impacted if a blue wave sweeps over Washington. He'll join us with his names. And zooming higher, cheaper Teslas and the debate over Netflix price hikes. That's all ahead today, but let's begin with the markets. Dom Chu has more for us. Dom? Hey, they're in the red, Kelly, but they're a lot better than they were just a few hours ago. Take a look at the Dow Industrials, down about 90 points. Yeah, it's significant, down one-third of 1%. We were down over 300, not long after the opening bell today. The S&P 500, 34.68, the last trade there, off about one-half of 1%. And the focus on the Nasdaq composite continues underperforming today on a down day as it has on down days. Remember, though, it outperforms on the up days. NASDAQ Composite, 11.640, the last trade there. I want to show you an intraday chart of what's happening here with this particular ETF, IGV. It tracks the software industry, the iShares Expanded Tech Software ETF. It's down 1% here, but take a look at this. At the lows here, we were off there a little bit. A lot of folks buying some of these dips and some of these ETFs that track software. The same thing is true of semiconductor ETFs. The same thing is true of cloud computing IT ETFs. So watch those particular trades, whether or not these sky-high flyers are actually catching a bit of a bid on a discount, relatively speaking. We'll watch that trade play out this afternoon. And then the fan- financials in focus yet again. We're kind of closing out the big cap, mega cap kind of bank earnings season. Morgan Stanley out with his results today. Better than expected for profits and sales. It's also done very well in terms of investment banking. It's up about 1.5% today. And then Charles Schwab on the discount brokerage side, up about 3.5%. They're opening up more accounts. More people are trading. Those two stocks in that financial sector, a key focus here. But remember, it's been an underperformer. It's going to have to do a lot more for some of these stocks to really break out of the recent ruts that they've been in. I'll send things back over to you, Kelly. Schwab rallying, Fidelity hiring, Dom. It is a retail trading boom. Thank you, sir. Dom Chu. The president says he's willing to raise the stimulus bill to more than $1.8 trillion. But his own party isn't fully on board with that. Let's get to Eamon Javers, who's got the latest for us out of Washington. Eamon. Yeah, Kelly, that's right. What we've got going on here is a three-way negotiation with three different positions less than three weeks before an election. And that's not a real recipe for success in Washington, D.C. As you say, the president uh, was on television this morning committing to going bigger in terms of a dollar figure. Here's what he said. I would say more. I would go higher. Would you call Go bigger, go home. I said it yesterday. Go bigger, go home. But Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to give anything. So the president there saying he's willing to go big or go home and blaming Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House, for the resistance. Uh, But the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, was on CNBC earlier today uh, conceding that he's also negotiating with Republicans up on Capitol Hill who don't want to go big or go home necessarily. Here's what Mnuchin had to say. We are also speaking to Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell on on a regular basis. Mark and I uh, had a two-hour conference call with the Senate Republicans over the weekend. Um, I think there there are certain areas where there's complete agreement on the Senate side. I think you know what we call the targeted bill had overwhelming support. That is the priority of the Senate. Uh, Mitch uh, agreed that he'll bring the PPP back to the floor to try to get that done. Hopefully the Democrats won't hold that up. Uh, but but we, we are moving forward uh, and we are seeking input from everybody. 
So Mnuchin's saying he's moving forward, but Mitch McConnell really isn't. McConnell has been saying all along he doesn't really see a need for more than about a half a trillion dollars in spending. And so the president and his team, including Mnuchin, are caught, Kelly, in a, in a, between a rock and a hard place here. They can't seem to be able to talk Nancy Pelosi down, and they also can't seem to be able to talk uh, Mitch McConnell up. So where does the White House go with just a couple of weeks left to the election? This one might have to go before the voters, before it's all sorted out here in Washington, Kelly. Back over to you. And there, you know, Eamon, again, we're highlighting some of the differences between the president and McConnell on this, which are, are one aspect of it. But it was also interesting to see Pelosi kind of get a hard time on CNN this week about her own stance. And I just yeah. wonder what that tells us right. about how public sentiment um, in terms of what the Democrats are betting on could turn against them if it's perceived that she is standing in the way of at least smaller, uh, more piecemeal deals getting done. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a real risk politically for Nancy Pelosi. There are some Democrats, a couple who've been willing, courageous enough to come out in public and say, look, uh, we need to accept this deal. Andrew Yang publicly is not in Nancy Pelosi's uh, conference, but has publicly said, uh, Nancy Pelosi, just accept this deal and move on. People are hurting too much. So there are some Democrats who are white knuckling this right now. Uh, but Nancy Pelosi's strategy has been, we're going to take the big bill or nothing at all. And she's holding fast to that. And that's why you saw that uh, testy and emotional interview with Wolf Blitzer on CNN earlier this week, uh, Pelosi just brushing off criticism that she needs to compromise. She says, how come we need to come down? How come they don't have to come up? So that's that's where we're at. It's a it's right. a standoff right now and no indication that it's going to break the logjam anytime soon. Right. All right. And the president seems to be almost in her corner on that. It's one of these just unusual dynamics. I mean, after uh, Eamon, thank you so much. We appreciate The president it. shut down these Go. negotiations and then he reopened the negotiations. And now he's on Nancy Pelosi's side against Mitch McConnell. It's a very confusing right. dynamic. Kelly. Yeah, I know. Uh, Eamon Javers, thank you very much, sir. And the impasse over the next round of covid relief. Uh, comes in combination with a big jump in jobless claims this morning. It's putting pressure on the market. Stocks are off session lows, but we're down for a third straight day. How should you invest in this environment? Joining me now are Charlie Babrinskoy, the vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel Investments, and James McDonald, the CEO and chief investment officer at Hercules Investments. It's good to have you both. And Charlie, I mean, I'm chuckling just at the, the kind of strange politics here, but certainly not at the fact that there's a real need uh, for the next round of aid. The question I have, though, is, is that need being reflected in the markets? We, we do move around, obviously, on these headlines, but these moves are not dramatic. What do you think is necessary here? You know, this is a classic case of, of short-term factors having a big impact on the market when we all know that in the long run, owning stock means you have a legal claim to years and years and years and years of cash flows that really aren't going to be affected by the size of this relief package. But there's just no denying this does move markets. And frankly, I've, I've changed my opinion on this a little bit. I was pretty sure we were going to get mm. uh, some kind of package, and I, I thought it was in everybody's best interest to get a package. And now I'm not so sure. Uh, in fact, I, I think given mm. the numbers that we're talking about, I don't think Mitch McConnell wants to pass a $2 trillion bill, and I don't think Nancy Pelosi is going to take less than that. So that won't be good for the market in the short term. It won't matter in the long run, but in the short term, it's not good. Uh, it's interesting, Charlie, you've changed your thinking on that. And it, I mean, listen, if if it was perceived like it was necessary enough, it would get done, don't you think? I mean, the market would force it to. It's like the TARP vote in 2008 or anything else where they say, listen, you have to do this. The economy's on the brink. Why isn't the market forcing this? 
It, because Mrs. Pelosi, I don't think, thinks that way. I, I think she thinks it's in her best interest for this to fall through and have the president blamed for it. I mean, I, I'm not a political analyst, but that's my reading of the tea leaves. Um, she also thinks she has a lot of leverage here to get things like help for states with big deficits that uh, Senate Republicans do not want to bail out the states that have, in their view, not run their financial houses well. So there's a real gap here. And, and again, I thought we were all going to get together because it was in everybody's best political interest. I'm just not sure that's true anymore. All right. James, let me turn to you. I start off by asking you what, what your advice would also be for investors. I know you like to invest thematic and kind of look past a lot of the noise here. Um, wh where are you on investing today with all of this back and forth uh, going, going on? We're extremely cautious about stocks. Uh, we have most of our long positions in volatility, which we believe is extremely underpriced here, has a lot of upside potential. As it relates to an investing strategy at this point, there are several tipping points where we stand. We stand at a tipping point of a new potential president and a new concept of how to manage uh, the fiscal situation with COVID and then the health situation as well. We have a very tense public, socially speaking. Uh, these are very, very important themes that are going into this election and will dictate uh, how markets behave. And then, of course, we have a very high-valued tech market, which has dominated most of the returns in investor portfolios. If we look at this in a macro picture, the bull market, uh, which began in earnest in March of 2009, has put a lot of money in people's portfolios. And that money primarily has been generated from tech. And tech here is yeah. a weak point uh, going forward because of the valuation. And so we are very cautious with stocks. Uh, we are urging our investors and other uh, uh, institutional investors as well to introduce volatility as a hedge and or uh, potential upside for growth. All right. I know that Charlie likes Viacom. He likes Goldman Sachs' investments here. He hates long-term bonds. We've talked about that. Uh, James, give me a, a couple of your names are obviously more tech-focused. Um, right. Tell me, for instance, why you think people should still invest in Zoom. Okay. So if we look at risk in the market, it's not the first time. And in 2001, 2008, uh, there were huge successful tech companies that got hammered, Microsoft, Dell, uh, Amazon. And we believe that we'll get through this. We do see some short-term pressure in the market. But when we come out of that, we've got new generational names like Zoom Communications. We're all using Zoom, just like we all used Microsoft Office. We like Datadog to manage cloud applications. Cloud applications will be so critical in cloud management as most interactions and entertainment um, and computing happens in the cloud. We like Beyond Meat as a, as a non-tech name. Uh, over 90% of people who eat our official me aren't necessarily vegetarians. And so we think this is a generational yeah. opportunity. Uh, and these are names, including DocuSign as well, where we're all using the products um, and our adoption of these products is going to accelerate. And so we do like those names for buys as we get pressure in tech to come back in. All right, James and Charlie, thank you both this afternoon. Good to see you. Appreciate it. James McDonald and Charlie Bobrinskoy. Coming up, it's the Retail Blues. We're going to look at names in the sector that could take a hit to their bottom line if a blue wave sweeps over Washington. Tell you why. Plus, streaming higher. Wall Street is in love with Netflix ahead of its earnings next week uh, with one bullish call after another. We'll talk about why everyone's so positive. And are investors completely giving up on value? Just throwing in the towel. The exchange is back in a couple.
We are a little more than two weeks away from the election, and investors are starting to consider what a Biden victory and a potential Democratic sweep of Congress would mean for the market. Joining me now with more on what a so-called blue wave could mean for retail in particular and which names are most at risk, Ike Borshaw is managing director at Wells Fargo Securities. Ike, it's good to have you back, and let's start with why a blue wave is a risk to retail in the first place. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me back. So there's clearly there's puts and takes here. There's pros and cons, but but I think the most obvious one is the negatives. So clearly under a blue wave scenario, there's going to be some ramifications for consumer discretionary and retail that have to be considered. First and foremost, there's taxes. Most retail companies that we cover are almost entirely U.S.-based. That means material implications from Biden's proposed change in the corporate tax rate um, from 21 to 28 percent. So that's clearly a negative. Secondly, wages. Biden proposes $15 minimum wage uh, at the federal level from about 725 today. So clearly many states are already well above that and several have plans to go at 15 over time. But again, this is a net negative to retailer costs to some degree. So th- those are the first two negatives um, that we got to start with. Sure. Uh, and so from there, you start to think about, well, what, what's the upside? There's clearly a wild card here. It's, it's stimulus. We saw what stimulus did to consumer demand this year uh, when COVID hit. So we've already talked about the bad guys on taxes and wages. But remember, those those drive demand from consumer spending on the low end, lower taxes for consumers, higher wages for consumers. So there are puts and takes here, Kelly, that you got to consider. Yeah. So let's go through some of the names, because basically the scenario that you're describing is is kind of profit margin pressure. And you see names like Signet, uh, like Gap, like Urban Outfitters, um, Boot Barn, right? I mean, th- these are some companies who could be especially at risk of that uh, in terms of that profit margin pressure. Yeah, I think I think when you just take the costs and the taxes for what they are and you flow them through the models, those are the guys that are going to be the most impacted because of their geographic mix their margin structures, et cetera. Um, you know, but, but again, I, I do think it's important to think about the wild card here. Um, it's easy for you and me to, to, to raise tax, tax rates and costs in the model and see what, see what it spits out. But a key thing we're trying to talk about in the report today is under a blue wave scenario, um, we're, we're not only going to get the benefit of spending on the low end, but we're likely going to see uh, the HEROES Act come into play. So while things like healthcare and climate change clearly are not going to impact my sector, Things that are included there do have an impact are things like another round of relief checks, hazard pay for essential workers, expanded unemployment assistance. Then all of a sudden, we're talking more about a demand-driven upside sector and less about the cost. So that's why I'm kind of saying you got to look at it from both angles. A hundred percent. And those names you think would be exposed on the upside, Burlington, Foot Locker, Ross Soares and TJX. Like we have to leave it there. But again, it, it, it suggests that maybe tactically instead of thematically overall is how investors should be thinking about this market uh, under the next potential administration. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a different playing field depending on where you're positioned. Thanks again for your time, sir. We appreciate it. We'll check back in soon. Thanks, Kelly. Ike Borishow with Wells Fargo. Still ahead, we'll talk about Zoom. It's zooming higher as analysts continue to get bullish with a new street high price target of $611. We will break down why with the shares up nearly 5% today. Plus, it's the hot IPO of the day. Shares of Array Technology soaring in their market debut. They're up almost 40%. We've got the solar CEO in a first on CNBC interview next. And speaking of jobs, the airline industry in the middle of a wave of furloughs as they wait for D.C. to provide relief. Here's what United CEO Scott Kirby had to say about the industry after earnings today. Now we're kind of at this point where we think we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's a long tunnel. It's going to have ups and downs. Uh, It's going to take a widely available vaccine, which is probably the end of next year. 
Welcome back to the exchange. And markets might be lower, but we're at session highs right now, believe it or not. The Dow's down 68, but at the lows, we are down 332 points today. So that's a pretty sizable comeback. It's a quarter percent drop, though. And check uh, check out the difference between the major averages. The S&P is down more than half a percent. The Nasdaq is down 1.2 percent today. And that'll give you a feel for the sectors. Real estate, financials and utilities, that's your leadership today. Uh, meanwhile, technology is lagging. Communication services is down there as well. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The U.K. reporting just under 19,000 new COVID-19 cases on Thursday and 138 deaths. The daily case number is down, however, from yesterday's total of about 19,700. Here at home in North Carolina, early voting is getting underway today. Voters could be seen waiting in long lines to cast their ballots. The doors opened at 8 a.m. today, but some voters say they lined up as early as 4 a.m. Cinemas in part of India reopening today after seven months of closures. The theaters are showing mostly old titles. Virus protections include masks and temperature checks. But some Indian states like Mumbai are putting off reopening cinemas for now. And Britain's Queen Elizabeth making her first major outing since the virus lockdowns began in March. She visited a military research center in southwest England and the Queen making a joint appearance with her grandson, Prince William. All socially distanced. That is the news update this hour. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Let's check in on shares of Array Technologies. They're a maker of solar power equipment, soaring 45% now in their debut on the NASDAQ today. It's the biggest solar IPO of the year. Joining me now is Jim Fusaro. He is the CEO of Array Technologies. Jim, welcome. And do you feel like you left a little money uh, there uh, <laughs> that you could have grabbed? Hi, Kelly. Thanks for the time. Uh, I'll just start off by saying this is an amazing day. Really proud of the team and getting us to where we are. Uh, they've really delivered over the past few years, and we're really excited about the future here. Let's talk about New Mexico. I want everybody to know, I think this is the biggest IPO ever of a New Mexico company, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I, I think it's worth noting, too, if you think of what we do, we're utility-scale solar tracking, and, uh, and this is a U.S. invention, and it was really our founder, Ron Corio, who pioneered this industry and made it what it is in the early throws. And he's been a longtime resident of New Mexico. Um, and what uh, what the product does and the value that it creates in, in the marketplace is uh, really something exciting. And uh, we continue to innovate and drive innovation going forward. Jim, the fact that you guys are on the manufacturing side of this uh, is often seen as the less desirable part of the solar business. Um, so your performance today really speaks volumes. I mean, how much excitement is there around solar right now? And would you trace it to potential change uh, in Helm in Washington? Yeah, first of all, we're, we're really a technology company. When you think about uh, how our technology enables the production of a solar panel as if it was in a fixed position, when you put it on our system, it generates up to 25% more energy. We've recently developed software, uh, machine learning algorithms that uh, continue to increase the production of those panels. So think of it as a cloudy day. You may not necessarily want that solar panel pointing directly at the sun. Diffuse light conditions may be pointing straight up. So we continue to invest heavily in the technology front. And I would also add that this is an asset that lasts 25 years. So the amount of engineering that goes into it 
really designing for wind. Wind is a common occurrence across the globe. We have patented technology that protects the system in that capacity. So there's a lot of technology that goes in this. So that's kind of where I would uh, uh, like you to, that's the key takeaway here. Absolutely. And I guess my final question in that regard is, do you worry about the Chinese literally stealing your trade secrets? I mean, at some point, they're going to come up with this themselves, right? Yeah, you know, we have patented technology that protects us uh, for over 15 years. So we have a suite of IP uh, through the uh, Patent uh, uh, Protection Treaty. We have over 30 countries that are recognized in that. Um, we are across the globe. Our technology is being used by the tier one providers. So uh, we've defended our patents before and we believe it's in a, in a very good position here to continue growth, both here domestically and internationally. So I always re keep a healthy paranoia surrounding competitors, but we believe our patents are strong enough to protect us in the regions and the nations that we plan to grow in. Well, congratulations again. Uh, and thanks so much for your time today, Jim. Thank you, Kelly. Jim Fusaro is the CEO of Array Technology. Shares are up 45% on their debut. Coming up, it's streaming in a premium. Two price cuts in a week for the Tesla Model S. And K-pop looks for another chart topper, this time in the markets. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Seema Modi, Mike Santoli, and Dear Jabosa. Welcome, everybody. And let's start with Zoom today. The video conferencing giant hosted its investor day and user conference known as Zoomtopia yesterday. Uh, the company said total minutes spent on its platform has exploded by 30-fold. That prompting firms like Bernstein to raise its price target on Zoom from $228 to $611. Deirdre, a little bit of catch up there. Uh, yeah, I mean, people are already talking about Zoom's valuation being out of control. This is substantially higher than where it's trading right now at about $537. But Zoomtopia has been all about where does the company go next? And that has really been the biggest question for investors, not just for future growth, but to justify its current valuation. Are they doing a good job here? I think so. There's been a lot of talk about Zoom phone. And Kelly, guys, this is the idea that you may not want to be on a Zoom video all day, but you can transfer this to your phone and go for a walk when we're all working from home. That's a pretty appealing idea if that transition is simple and quick like it is to get on a Zoom call. So penetration there is low as well. So that is sort of what Zoom is saying is the future. And what I believe Bernstein is saying, why there's room for this already sky high valuation to go even further. Yeah, that's hilarious. They're, they're saying the future of video conferencing is the conference call. So, yeah, Mike, I, let me go to you. And also, I mean, it's such a tale of the biggest two tech high flyers this year in the market today. You have Zoom up another 5%, even though Fastly is getting creamed. Yeah. And yes, there's kind of a specific aspect to Fastly where they apparently are losing some TikTok businesses. That's kind of caught in, in this dispute. But I mean, I'm I'm surprised that Zoom isn't suffering more just on this kind of nervousness about yeah. how much these shares can correct. Yeah, you would think at some point, Kelly, maybe we do get a broader rethink of, OK, exactly what are we willing to pay? Uh, what kind of valuation are we willing to apply to a company which admittedly is accelerating into a fast growing market? So uh, Zoom is, a, is seeming like a special case because they are turning profitable. Uh, they do have tremendous stickiness in terms of it seems the business subscribers they have, but one hundred and fifty billion dollar market cap right now. I looked at that Bernstein note. 
for 2025 estimates, according to Bernstein, it's at 15 times revenue. It's at 40 times earnings in five years. You know, you have to assume this is going to be one of the next indispensable platform companies like a Facebook, like an Alphabet, like a Netflix. And I don't think any of them actually ever traded that rich five years in advance. Seema, quick last word on this. Well, Zoom is ubiquitous now with that work from home setup, Kelly. The challenge it now faces seven months into this, into this pandemic is, is holding on to its users as a number of these copycat uh, platforms emerge. And so we'll have to see if these new products will, will help it stay in the lead. And we've just learned that the CEO of Zoom is going to be on Closing Bell today, 4 p.m. Eastern time. I look forward to hearing more from him about that and what the company's plans are. But again, conference call. The, who, the phone call is the future. Uh, let's move on and talk about some Netflix getting love on the street today for something its subscribers could hate. Both Canaccord Genuity and Jefferies are saying that price hikes might be on their way. Netflix shares about uh, down 1% today, but they've doubled off their lows. They've already raised prices in Canada, and this week they just dropped their new free trials or their free trials, I should say, for new members. In October alone, four different firms have raised their price targets on the stock. Is this how Netflix wins the next phase of the streaming wars, Mike, or do they end up, I mean, this is what we talked about on Power Lunch with an analyst who was more skeptical about Netflix yesterday, saying he's not sure these price hikes are going to work for them. Well, I think it's been a pretty necessary piece of the bull case for, for Netflix at some point down the road that, in fact, they just try to exploit pricing power and try. For, remember when they they tried to get a little tighter on shared passwords. And so there's always been the story out there that they were just essentially underpricing the product or being lax about people getting in without paying just because they wanted to expand the base. At least in the U.S., they probably figured they're indispensable pretty much to most people who have a streaming uh, kind of attention on streaming and they can you know, press their bets on this front. I do think that, look, they're still free cash flow negative. I think the street ultimately would like the fact that they test this out, see if they have a little more uh, pricing power down the road and, uh, and, and try to make the numbers work longer term. I don't think that they're very nervous about a lot of uh, heavier churn uh, at this point, especially when you have things like yeah. HBO Max coming in at a higher price point. Right. And Seema, I mean, yes, Netflix could raise prices. People get frustrated. There's more competition than ever, but it's still pretty cheap, don't you think? I guess. But are we saying that a high tech, fast growing technology company actually cares about profits? I mean, what is that? I just think that the timing of all this really interesting. Just two days ago, Kelly, you and I were discussing how aggressive Disney is becoming with beefing up its uh, content online and now releasing more of its films uh, specifically on Disney Plus. I think the timing is actually raising some eyebrows here. Well, it should be concerned with profit, though, on the other hand, because this is supposed to be part of Fang, right? On the same lines as Facebook, Amazon and Apple. But it's not really trading like any of those names, right? It's worth what much less in terms of market cap. And I think that Netflix has been able to generate buzzy original titles. But will they stand the test of time? like a Disney movie or an office or friends. I think that still remains to be seen. I don't know, Kelly, would you watch House of Cards again or Selling Sunset? I just don't see very many titles out there that you go back and rewatch yeah. like some of the other platforms do have and are taking off Netflix, by the way. My I know Mike's laughing because he knows I'm going to say this. I haven't seen any of those <laughs> series. I, I use my <laughs> husband's sister's login like I had to watch this documentary the other I mean, it, it, that's it. So, you know, I, not the best case in point. We, I, I like Mike's daughters as the well, final she, word on this. Now your sister-in-law is going to get, you know, an email from Netflix. <laughs> in trouble? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
can we follow the rules? You can only do one or two screens at a time. So I check in with my mother-in-law and if she's not watching, then we, you know, it's, it's totally healthy. Uh, all right, let's move Don't along because Elon my Musk is them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You got to have the each each person has their own account. Uh, Elon Musk is at it again. Everybody, he is making two price cuts to the Model S just in the past week. He just tweeted that the gauntlet has been thrown down. The prophecy will be fulfilled. Model S price changes to $69,420. Before this, the Model S price was going from about seventy-five to 72000 Now this would put it below 70000 Some customers were uh, chuckling at this, but investors not amused. They were chuckling at the $420 piece of it, I think. Uh, but the stock is down three and a half percent today, Seema. Do you think these cuts are why? Well, this isn't the first time Elon Musk has promised a, a cheaper electric vehicle. And just the last month, he had said at the Tesla shareholder meeting, I believe, that he wants the EV price to come down to $25,000. So for him to this week now say uh, he's also looking at other cost-cutting strategies. I mean, I think the real key here is bringing down the price of that battery cell so they can then lower the price of, uh, of the car. That will then allow him to get access to a wider audience at a time when, you know, just yesterday we were talking about used car prices uh, being extremely doing extremely well right now. Right. They're, they've been through the roof. So, Mike, here's my question about Tesla. I think we're coming off a six-day win streak. Um, this is the stock that, again, was below $200 pre-split about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Are you amazed at its staying power up at these nosebleed levels? Yes, continually amazed. And, you know, you really can't make, in that context, all that much of a 3.5% pullback, even though, you know, you can make a joke about a price cut into a strong auto sales market. But I don't think, all else being equal, that's a bullish thing for them to be cutting prices. They're saying it's because they have manufacturing efficiencies. But right now we're just talking about a company that's still – really on target just to meet the baseline expectations for how many cars are going to sell this year. So it's trading on the big grand future of many years to come. It's not really trading on this year's uh, kind of how many cars do we sell at what price. And the more focus you get on the here and now, I think the more the stock suffers. But usually it doesn't last longer than a day. One of these deals where you say, wait, are they going to be okay on the volumes? (laughs) Right. We all ask and then, you know, it takes off on another six-day win streak. Deirdre? (laughs) I wouldn't read too much into it. I think this is just an Elon flex on the lucid air, right? Someone who used to work for him coming out with a new EV model that is supposed to be great as well. There's high expectations for it. And that's priced at what, $69,900? So Elon Musk just wants the last word here is my opinion. All right. Well, the last word here is going to be on K-pop because with Deirdre, we got to get done. Okay, let me tell you what's going on first. The K-pop sensation BTS went public today and it was dynamite. The boy band's label, Big Hit Entertainment, debuted in Seoul and the shares popped, bringing their value to about eight and a half billion dollars. Now, there are investment risks that come with a bet on BTS, like the South Korean mandatory military service, the possibility of a band breakup, you know, like the Backstreet Boys back in the day. Uh, so CNBC's resident K-pop correspondent Dominic Chu has been requested to join us now, Dom, and maybe start with an apology to all those BTS bots, as you called them, who are clearly in love with this stock. I mean, wow, what an IPO. Well, it, it wasn't just the bots. It was the BTS army, right? I mean, th- th- this is a cultural phenomenon. <laughs> it's a huge move here by BTS and its management company, Big Hit. But this, what, what this comes down to is betting on the future of not just this band, but beyond as well. Because the story here is not just that it's BTS that's going public. It's the management company behind it that's going public. Now, this is a management company that gets the vast majority of its business from BTS, 
upwards of around 90% of that business. But what's curious about this is each one of the seven members of this band got an equity stake in this particular IPO, which means they have a vested interest in seeing this company go beyond just BTS. So as you talk about the cultural phenomenon, all of the supporters they have out there, all the fans that they have, this is about whether or not they can get richer than they already are in the future because they're going to find the next BTS that comes out of this whole process, Kel. That's why this is such a, a fascinating story to me. And Dom, you were so right. So, so last time we talked about uh, K-pop on Rapid Fire, for a reason I can't even recall, Dom had said, listen, if you, if you don't understand how big they are, just wait. You know, this goes on Twitter and the bots are. And all these people came out and said, Dom, I'm not a bot. And we had all these tweets. I mean, Dom, it was going on for days. You know, and, and you were absolutely right. The, there is so much uh, fandom, and we know, obviously, the popularity of this. Deirdre, did, did he leave anything out in that report? I thought it was pretty good. You know, I'm just surprised that Dom uh, showed his face back here on the BTS story. You know, you clogged up my Twitter feed with that comment as well, Dom. Uh, You laid it out perfectly. But Kelly, I remember the last time we talked about BTS. It was the Fortnite dance party, which is just another element of this. How smart the company, Big Hit Entertainment and the group is. They've really embraced digital online concerts as well as something like a Fortnite dance party. So that's also one of their strengths is that they know how to operate in a digital world. Mike, I can't imagine a Korean boy band management company is the kind of IPO that you'd really want to like, you know, recommend to people. Yeah, well, I was actually joking this morning. Like, are we a little, are we surprised the NASDAQ maybe is going to pull back a little bit after we see this particular IPO <laughs> suggesting there might be a little froth out there? However, all these concerns about guys aging out of the, of the band, I mean, I'm old enough to remember Menudo which lasted 30 years or something. They just get new guys coming in and create new bands out of, you know, there's, there's guys turning 15 every year. Menudo, so. what is that? It's oh, tripe, it's tripe soup. Mike, you're going to get the uh, BTS army after you, implying they're replaceable. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, thank you all so much today. And Dom, thank you for joining us. Uh, seriously, I love it. I, I know more about the subject now I ever thought I would. Seema Modi, Mike Santoli, Dear Jabosa, and our own Dom Chu. Up next, it's no secret that gross stocks have outperformed value this year, but one famed value fund manager is closing up shop. Should investors say a final goodbye to value? That's next. Welcome back. Value fund manager Ted Aronson is closing down his fund following steep losses, and he's blaming market forces. Bob Bassani is here with a closer look at what it's saying about the world of value investing. Bob? And Ted Aronson is a very famous value investor. He had a $10 billion fund. Uh, It was $30 billion at one time. He's going to stop trading on November 30th. Aronson is very respected as a quant investor. He's been around for decades. He started at Drexel Burnham a long time ago. He worked with Michael Milken. Comcast chief Brian Roberts was an intern at one point. He's been specializing in value stocks really since he founded the fund. But as you know, value has been underperforming not just for a few months, a one year, five years, even 10 years. Look in the last five years. The S&P growth ETF is up over 100%, but the S&P value ETF is only up 30%. And this underperformance goes back years and years. Even on a 10-year level, the S&P growth is up almost 300%. This is 10 years. 
Value's only up a little more than 100%. So the question here, I think, Kelly, is this one of those bell-ringing moments that highlights the bottom of the trade when big-time investors kind of throw in the towel? We've seen this in the past. Normally, you get what we call mean reversion, where eventually stuff evens out. Value did very well in the 2000s. It's been terrible in the 2010s. And the question, of course, everybody's asking is, does this mean anything right now other than just value keeps underperforming? Big deal when a big value manager says, I don't see much of a, 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 a movement or a future in what we're doing. Oh, yeah. Very big deal. I had no idea that Brian Roberts interned from that's fascinating. And like you said, Bob, the only maybe hope for the rest of his community is that this is a contrarian indicator. We'll see. Mr. Bassani, thank you, sir. Bob Bassani with the latest okay, for us. Pleasure. Now, despite all of the red that we've seen in the market and the volatility these last few days, the major averages are still positive over the past week. In fact, we're at session highs right now, even though the Dow's down about 39. Joining me now is Kamal Kumar. He is president of Kumar Global Strategies. It's good to have you here, sir. And, you know, we're ta just talking to Bob about the value trade not working. A lot of people this year even are pinning their hopes on a rotation as the economy improves. You don't think that's in the cards? Uh, I think a reversion is, is in the cards, Kelly, and I think we are talking about a market correction taking place as we approach the elections, and 2021, I think, is going to be the beginning of the mean reversion. Bob spoke about how we have had a decade-long underperformance of value, but during the 2000s, we had a good performance. So these days, the reversion to the mean is taking place much longer than otherwise expected, but I think it is coming from next year onward. So where do you see the market, the stock, where do you see the stock market and where do you see the bond market next year, this time next year? Uh, this time next year, meaning you're talking about the second half of 2021, the stock market may well be up after a steep decline before that. My major concern is about the next six months for the equity market and also my uh, optimism about the bond market for the next ten, ten, uh, six months or so. Equities, I think, are likely to go steeply down. As far as Treasury yields are concerned, we saw a rally earlier today, some of which was reversed in the last few minutes. But my expectation is that the 10-year will go below the 70 basis point mark uh, permanently and then below the 60 basis point mark by the big, by the election time. In the case of the 30-year, wow. I think the expectation is for it to go below 140. So what would your advice be to investors in the meantime? I, the advice would be that there is still gains to be made on risk-averse assets, on treasuries, uh, look for the yield curve to flatten, not to steepen, and be very defensive on the equity side, even though value has underperformed growth. Go more into value, assuming you have a two to five year time horizon in front of you. Those would be some of the points. And then again, we have seen a rally in German bunds. Uh, gold price being above 1900, I would look for the gold price to be over 2000. All of these are risk-free plays, which I think will do well. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, Kamal Shri Kumar, for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Shri Kelly. Kumar Global Strategies. Still ahead, the ongoing pandemic may not seem like the right time to launch a business, but we're going to speak with two brothers who have done just that. 
the creators of Pasta Packs, on why the lockdown was the right time to cook up ideas next. Welcome back. We've been tracking the surge of new startups launching during the pandemic with the number of new business applications hitting its highest level in over a decade. One of those startups is a meal kit delivery service called Pasta Packs. Back in March, two brothers decided it was time to let their idea boil over. Joining me now are Nick and Greg Bryan. They are the co-founders of Pasta Packs. Welcome, guys. Hey, how are you? Nick, I'll start with you. Tell me how you launched this and why you would do it in the middle of a pandemic. Being, I got laid off from work, being at home, doing nothing wasn't a, uh, wasn't an opportunity for me, wasn't a decision for me. So we kind of hit the ground running right away to, to give people the restaurant style quality at home with a uh, little preparation as possible. And Greg, tell me how the business works and how it's been going since the launch, because this must have been an incredibly, even though Nick, like you said, you didn't have a choice, still to start a business must have been incredibly nerve wracking. How's it going? Yeah, business is going like really, really good, I think, given the situations, uh, you know, and just the climate of like the world at the moment. But, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's worked out really well. Like people still want to enjoy like really good food and and, you know, just the, the world of quarantine and everything has just made cooking at home just like all the more important like nowadays. I was amazed to read, Nick, is this right? Your typical order is about $85. You must be a really good cook. What What's in there and what are people ordering? It's it's the process that goes through it. I cook with a lot of love and oh, a bunch of fresh ingredients. It's, it's a, our, our process saves you six hours of prep time. It breaks it down to about 10 minutes. So it's, it's a good amount of work that I do on my side to make sure that uh, the consumers at home have it nice and easy. Greg, did you have any numbers in mind for this? Like, did you guys say to yourselves, okay, we have to hit a certain number by, you know, six weeks in or a few months in and, and, you know, tell me about how that has borne out relative to what your expectations were. No, I think, I think in the beginning it was just, you know, we just, I just wanted to dive in like head first. You know, we finally had this opportunity. Nick finally had time for us to, for us to create a concept and work on something. So at first, like, you know, during the proof of concept, it wasn't, we had nothing to lose basically, yeah. you know, but once, once that first month went by, the second month went by, it's like, okay, we have to take this much, much more seriously. And we kind of just set goals monthly and, and just kind of see if we, got them, if we could break them. And we have broken them like month after month, like consistently. And that's, that's kind of how we knew like, okay, like this, this is viable. That's awesome. Nick, what would your advice be to other chefs? I mean, there's the restaurant industry has been really hard hit by COVID, obviously. What would, would your advice be to other people who find themselves in a similar position as you were in back in the spring? I would say have definitely have a good team around you. Be sure of your ideas and, and, and go for it. It's being, being coming from a chef and only, uh, only being in the, the cooking side of a, of, of a restaurant and then coming onto the business side, I quickly learned that there's a lot more work behind the scenes of a restaurant rather than just food. There's a lot of marketing and, and there's, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. So yeah. just be prepared for a lot of work and just be prepared. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have fun while doing Do it. Do you too. guys like working together, Greg? Go ahead. Oh yeah, we love it. This is my brother. This is my brother. <laughs> Um, no, it's, it's, we go through, you know, we have, we have our business challenges, you know, like just, just pushing the business. Like we thoroughly enjoy it. Like it's a, it's a, it's a good exercise. 
Well, I look at you too, and I think maybe my two sons will go into business together one day. Uh, <clears throat> congratulations. Best of luck with it. And thanks for joining me. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Greg and Nick Bryan of Pasta Packs. That does it for The Exchange today. Thank you so much for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.